Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Wow. Well, the knives are out. The main narrative of this thing is that Bernie Sanders' campaign had a script where if somebody brought up Elizabeth Warren when you're talking to them on, a t- on the telephone, there's a telephone script, you should say things like, well, yeah, she does well with, you know, well-educated white people. She's apparently bringing some of them into the party, you know, which is kind of a slap. You know, it's, it's basically saying she's an elitist. And so, you know, the Warren campaign said, hey, let's stop that. <laughs> don't do that. And I don't know if the Bernie campaign stopped it or not. I've seen conflicting reports in the media. But then, you know, apparently Elizabeth Warren leaked or her campaign leaked. I, I, I'm guessing this has more to do with campaign managers than the candidates themselves, but who knows? Leaked that uh, in a meeting two years ago when Bernie and Elizabeth got together and talked about getting into this race, Bernie had pointed out that Trump was able to weaponize anything. Look at what he did to all those Republicans and that he would be, Trump would be weaponizing gender against any woman who ran. And according to Elizabeth Warren, he said he didn't think, therefore, that a woman could beat Trump. And she came out and reaffirmed that either late yesterday or this morning and said she disagrees. She thinks that a woman can beat Trump. I think a woman can beat Trump, too. But frankly, you know, this is getting so much play, particularly on CNN. I watched CNN for about an hour this morning while I was marking up the show. And it really surprised me. I, well, I guess it shouldn't have surprised me. The, the debate is going to be on CNN. So, of course, they want to get as many eyeballs as possible. So, anyhow, that's going on. But there's another debate that essentially is happening. And that is about the policies that both Senator Sanders and Senator Warren are proposing. And I saw a piece on this on MSNBC on, uh, I believe it was on Morning Joe, and then I saw a, uh, a guest, two guests, in fact, on CNN this morning talking about this. And in both cases, what they were saying was essentially, oh, my God, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren want to spend more money. The guy on CNN said, they want to double the size of the federal government. Well, it depends on how you define size, all right, employees, Money spent? I don't, you know, I don't know. 
but yeah. I mean, not double, that's hyperbole. But the simple reality is that right now in the United States, federal spending is about a third of GDP. It's 35% of GDP. So you get the, you know, the entire size of the economy, about a third of that is federal spending. And of course, a big chunk of that is the Pentagon. But a big chunk of that is also Medicare and Social Security, which is you know, why the banksters in New York want to, want to privatize so badly. But if you look at the European Union, and, and, and this is the entire EU, right? All 20 high, 30 low, high, roughly 30 countries in the European Union. I'm sorry, I don't have that number right off the top of my head. But bottom line, you know, a number of those countries, you know, like Turkey, do not invest heavily in their public sector. And other countries like Denmark invest very heavily in their public sector. So this is an average across the EU. And it's 46% or nearly half. 46% of GDP is government spending. Now, what accounts for the difference? Yes, you know, about half of all spending in, in Denmark, probably a little more than half, is government spending. So what accounts for that? Well, people never get a medical bill. Last year in the United States, 634,000 people filed for bankruptcy because somebody got sick. About half of all bankruptcies in this country. And it's not always just a physical illness. There's also mental illness. There's also crises that have to do with people's teeth or their vision, which are generally not covered by our insurance policies or Medicare or Medicaid here in the United States. Those are all covered in most of the European countries. So basically, people don't live in fear of getting sick. Is that worth having your government be a little larger? Assuming that you think that that's some kind of an evil to begin with, I, you know, I'm not buying that because, frankly, quality of life in Denmark or Germany or, you know, pick your country, quality of life is better than here. The work hours are shorter or fewer than here. The standard of living is higher than here. They don't have deep levels of poverty. You don't see homelessness. You don't see people declaring bankruptcy. I mean, you have 634,000 people declare bankruptcy in the United States because somebody got sick. How many declared bankruptcy in Denmark? Zero. Germany, zero. France, zero. I mean, you know, pick your European country, zero. So that's health care. Then also in all those countries, in Denmark, for example, you get paid according to uh, an email that I got from somebody who's apparently Danish, you get paid 900 bucks a month to go to school. Plus your tuition is free. But they pay for books and for the cost of living and everything. Right. We could do that here. It would just mean that government spending would be a larger share of GDP. And it's going to be real interesting to see how this plays out. And this is the biggest difference between the two sides. You have on one side Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who are saying yes government spending should go up dramatically to pay for college for everybody and to pay for health care for everybody. And then you've got a few other people on that stage Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, and Tom Steyer who are all saying no government spending should not go up dramatically. We can figure out how to, how to, you know, muddle through 
and reduce the number of people who commit suicide in the United States because, you know, economically they're shattered because somebody got sick and reduce the number of people who have to declare bankruptcy from 600,000 down to maybe 300,000. And the, the wealth tax, we, we now see, you know, 57% of Americans are in favor of a wealth tax, which is how Bernie and, and Warren, uh, Liz Warren, want to pay for this in large part. Rather than taking it out of your pocket, take it out of the pocket of Tom Steyer. It'll be interesting to see what he has to say about this, too. But, you know, the other thing in Europe they have, or in Denmark anyway, two years of unemployment insurance. The Republicans, we used to have two years of unemployment insurance. The Republicans did away with it during the Bush administration. They cut it down to a year. Trump has cut it down to six months. Federally supported long-term unemployment insurance. So you don't lose your home in most European countries if you lose your job. And you have in the United States right now this epidemic of what are called the diseases of despair. These numbers, over the last three years, these numbers have all gone up, not down. Deaths from suicide, deaths from alcoholism, deaths from drug abuse, and deaths from gunshot. They've all gone up in the three years since Trump has been in office. As our society gets more brutal and more rough and more whatever you want to call it. So, you know, what are you expecting and how do you think this is going to play out? And do you think that most Americans actually would like to see the United States become more like Germany or Sweden or France? Or do you think most Americans are really and truly terrified of that? That they just, you know, oh my God, we can't have that. Really? Have government? Half of, half of spending is government spending? But life is good. See, government is the way that we take care of each other. That's the whole point of it. Right? Government is simply an institutionalized version, essentially, of family. Shouldn't we be taking care of each other? I'll tell you about Soleimani, too. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Why You Should Be a Socialist by Nathan Robinson. This is from the introduction. In the last few years, U.S. politics has been completely upended. The presidency of Donald Trump, which took politicians and commentators by total surprise, shattered a number of Washington orthodoxies. Very few experts thought that a loquacious, loutish reality TV star was capable of rising to the nation's highest office. But they had misjudged political reality and forgotten the cardinal rule anything can happen. Trump's improbable rise to power was not the only political irregularity to occur over the last several years. While Trump was defeating the most powerful figures in the country's two major political parties, another unexpected phenomena was occurring, the rise of a new radicalism on the left. When Bernie Sanders began his campaign for the 2016 Democratic presidential nomination, no one expected him to pose a serious challenge to Hillary Clinton. Clinton was the consensus choice of the party establishment. Influential Democrats openly said it was her turn. Sanders was in the race as a protest candidate. Not only was he considered a marginal figure in Washington, lacking both connections and funding, but he did not have any of the characteristics that traditionally had made one electable. He was old. He was from a tiny state known for hippies and cheese. 
He was not particularly photogenic, polished, or popular. And he was an avowed socialist in a country that had had a half-century Cold War between good American capitalism and evil Soviet socialism. It was not, however, a year in which the traditional criteria of electability would matter especially much. Sanders, perhaps as much to his own surprise as anybody else's, quickly attracted a significant following. His radical message, stingingly critical of the existing Democratic Party, resonated strongly with progressives who felt let down by Obama and viewed Clinton as part of an uninspiring and possibly corrupt political dynasty. When the first primary contest came around, February 2016 Iowa caucuses, Sanders achieved a shockingly strong result, coming close to beating Clinton outright. As Sanders began to fill stadiums with crowds, attracting a highly visible and well-organized following, it quickly became clear that the race would not be the coronation that Clinton had anticipated. Clinton ultimately won the Democratic nomination, but it took a bruising fight. Sanders was no mere protest candidate. He was a serious competitor who won 23 contests to, Lincoln's, to Clinton's 34. While Clinton received over 16 million votes across the various primaries, Sanders achieved a remarkable 13 million. It was surprising enough that a socialist candidate could be anything more than a gadfly in a major party do nominating contest. It was downright stunning that such a candidate could rack up nearly two dozen primary victories against one of the most experienced and well-connected members of the Democratic Party. Sanders' unexpected rise to prominence represented an extraordinary shift in the political landscape. The nearest precedent was Eugene Debs' 1920 presidential run on the Socialist Party ticket. Debs achieved nearly a million votes, despite being in prison for defying the World War I draft. But even Debs didn't pose a serious electoral threat to the dominant parties, receiving only 3% of the general election vote. Sanders, who once recorded a spoken word Eugene Debs tribute album and kept a portrait of Debs in his office while mayor of Burlington, Vermont, achieved a far greater measure of success. He may not have started the political revolution that he often spoke of, but he came relatively close to poaching the presidential nomination from the party elite's pre-selected candidate. The Sanders campaign was fueled by millennials whose dissatisfaction with mainstream Democrats made them highly responsive to Sanders' progressive alternative. Clinton may have had more supporters than Sanders overall, but young people of all races and genders preferred Sanders over Clinton by large margins. With the exception of Lena Dunham, it is hard to find many people under 30 who had much enthusiasm for Clinton, a candidate they associated with Wall Street, cronyism, and the Iraq disaster. Sanders' success with millennials, while unanticipated by pollsters, did not occur purely because of Sanders' political skill. It happened because a revolt had been brewing among young progressives for years as they had steadily grown more and more alienated from the Democratic Party mainstream. Ever since the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011, young people in the United States had been becoming increasingly radicalized. Weighted down with debt, paying through the nose for health insurance, unable to afford to have kids, and frustrated by an undemocratic political system that implements the policy preferences of rich elites, millennials were both frustrated and tired. Sanders came along at just the right moment. They had been waiting for someone to say what was on their minds, that the economic and political systems were unfair at their core and needed a drastic overhaul. But the Sanders campaign was just the start. Joe Crowley had been in Congress for 20 years and was one of the highest ranking members of the House Democrats. He was considered a serious contender for the party leadership and known in his New York City district as a well-connected part of the local Democratic machine. 
He was the sort of backroom deal-making congressman whose influence is disproportionate to his name recognition. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was not an important figure in the Democratic Party, far from it. She was a 28-year-old bartender and activist who had once interned for Ted Kennedy and had worked for Bernie Sanders' campaign. A member of the Democratic Socialists of America, she was considered the longest of long shots in her primary contest against Crowley. Crowley had endorsements from powerful political organizations like the AFL-CIO. Why You Should Be a Socialist by Nathan J. Robinson. It's a new year and wrinkles are so last year's news, but with every passing year we do look older. But now that's all changed thanks to Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's magic in a bottle. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. Just apply this uh, powerful serum to problem areas and within minutes, voila, new younger you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox. It's all natural. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Ring in 2020 with Plexiderm for smoother, younger-looking skin in minutes. And it goes on clear so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles behind with Plexiderm. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN with two N's for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998 or visit Plexiderm.com today and use the code HARTMAN at checkout. And Chris in Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, Chris, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, yeah, Tom, thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate it. So you say that health care is a right, correct? I'm saying that health care is a right. The UN says that health care is a right, too. Okay. And, um, and every other developed that, country in the world says that health care is a right, and most okay. of them have written it into their constitutions, yes. Okay. Well, we all want the same thing. Like, I think everyone's in favor of making health care more affordable for, like, everyone. But the question is how we get there. I'm sorry. I'm kind of nervous. I've never done this before. So the real question is, declaring our right, give people incentive to work in the health care profession. I don't see where it would, would or would not. People don't necessarily go into particular jobs or job functions, you know, out of a sense of duty or morality. I know there are obviously exceptions to that. Joining the military, particularly during time of war, the popular war is different from that. But and, you know, in government service, some people, you know, view this as serving your fellow man and as a noble thing. But basically people choose generally speaking people choose professions because it's something that they would enjoy and it's something that they can make a living at so i don't declaring healthcare as a right if the united states was to join all the other other countries in the world and say healthcare is a right all that means is that now it becomes an obligation of government to protect that right it doesn't mean that people have to go into healthcare into the healthcare field or work in healthcare Chris, thanks for the call. Jennifer in Stillwater, Minnesota. Hey, Jennifer, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about quickly um, mm -hmm. that I think that this stuff is being ginned up uh, between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie by certain neoliberal, you know, corporate types because they want to continue that narrative that women don't support Bernie and, you know, it's, it's kind of just a continuing narrative of, you know, the Hillary-Bernie war. Now it's, yeah. oh, Elizabeth-Bernie. And, oh, women, Bernie's against women. And Bernie doesn't want women, you know, and Bernie bros and all this. And, you know, 
course, David Brock invented the term Bernie bros for Obama bros. That's where that came from. Anyone could Google that. Oh, I'd forgotten that. That's right. It was, yeah, it was was to trash uh, Barack Obama when Hillary was running against him in the primary. Yep, they were called Obama brothers. Yep, yep. It drives me crazy because I feel like I've been disappeared as a woman. Like, oh, only Bernie bros support Bernie, and, you know, women have to support, you know, a woman and all this. I mean, it's crazy. I know literally thousands of women who support Bernie. And, you know, we're not bros. Yeah, I mean, look at his rallies. It's, 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 it looks 50-50 to me. Uh, Jennifer, thanks a lot for the call. It's spot on and point made. Welcome back. Okay, so as important as the future of health care and the future of education and the future of our young people and ending homelessness in the United States and, and you know, diminishing poverty, as important as all those things are, war and peace are big issues, too. And Donald Trump, a couple of weeks ago, took us right up to the edge of World War III, scared the bejesus out of lots of us, myself included, or concerned the bejesus out of us by assassinating General Soleimani at the time he did in the way that he did inside Iraq on the road to the Baghdad airport at the same time killing the head of uh, an Iraqi Shia militia which was fighting ISIS. Now the effect of this was were multiple, the effects were multiple. Number one The country of Iraq said, hey, you just blew up a guy inside our country who was trying to engage in peace negotiations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. You know, and we were a party to that, and we don't appreciate it. We'd like you all to leave. So the Iraqi parliament kicks us out of the country. Trump says, oh, you want us to leave? We're going to impose sanctions on you. We're going to starve you. And we're going to prevent you from using a banking account which is the one way that you can sell your oil. I mean, this is just insane, right? But Trump said that. So number one, Iraq wants us out. Number two, Iran says, see the JCPOA, the, the Iran deal, the Iran nuclear deal, that Trump, quote, pulled us out of. Well, Iran had been honoring it. And Europe had been honoring it up until Soleimani was killed. Now, we were ignoring it, but everybody else was like, okay, we're, you know, we're going to stay with this. And the day after Soleimani is blown up, Iran says, that's it. We're not complying with this anymore. They walked it back a little bit and said that they're not going to kick out the inspectors. So they're still sort of complying with it. But basically, they put us on notice that, you know, if you're going to treat us this way, we're not going to play. And then Trump raised the sanctions on Iran, pushing Iran even closer to economic chaos. And, you know, what do countries in economic chaos do? Very often they go to war. Now, this is all really serious stuff, right? It was, I mean, we nearly had a war. Oh, and the third thing that happened is that the efforts of the government of Iraq and of the two Shia militias in Iraq, one affiliated with Iran, the other affiliated with Iraq, the leaders of both of which were killed in this airstrike against Soleimani, all of them said, we're going to stop all our efforts against the Islamic State. 
So now the Islamic State in Iraq is free to grow again, which they are doing. So Trump made Iraq less safe, made Iran less safe, made the world less safe, made America less safe, pissed off a whole bunch of people about us. And so, you know, Democrats in Congress are like, well, why'd you do that? Why did you engage in a behavior that had all these stupid outcomes? Why would you do that? And Trump says, well, there was an imminent threat. The law says I can assassinate somebody. If any minute now, it's the ticking time bomb thing, right? If any minute now, they're going to blow up something that belongs to the United States. They're going to hurt us. They're going to hit us. Because that was the only legal way he could do this. You don't assassinate a senior figure in a foreign government without a damn good reason. And his being a bad guy isn't a good enough reason. I mean, that's a great reason to bring charges against him at The Hague or issue an international arrest warrant or get a bunch of countries together to do But blow him up? No. Because of all of these negative consequences. ISIS was strengthened by Trump doing this. Al-Qaeda was strengthened by Trump doing this. The United States was weakened by Trump doing this. So, you know, he says, oh, well, it was eminent. And then his little toadies go on TV, you know, Mike Pompeo, oh, yes, it was eminent. And then Trump says, oh, they were going to attack our embassy. So the Democrats said, well, show us some proof. And he said, oh, I don't need to show you any proof. And he goes on TV and he says, they're going to attack four embassies. So then the head of the Pentagon, the, the defense secretary, goes on TV and says, well, no, I didn't see anything that said anything about four embassies, no. So Trump's just lying through his teeth here. And now this morning he tweets, the fake news media and their Democrat partners are working hard to determine whether or not the future attack by terrorist Soleimani was imminent or not, and was my team in agreement? The answer to both is a strong yes, but it doesn't really matter because of his horrible past. So Trump now says, well, it doesn't really matter. In other words, he's, what he is saying is that he can go to war or he can take an action that could put us in the middle of a war anytime he wants, under any circumstances, essentially, as long as that person is a terrible person. This is not how democracies work. We'll be back. So nuclear power is being sold as the thing that's going to save us from climate change. It's not. Not only did it take mind-boggling amounts of carbon to even build a nuclear power plant, all that concrete, all that steel, all that stuff that has to be hauled in and transported, and then you got to mine the uranium, and then you got to ship it, and all this kind of stuff. But now the industry is out with their handout. 20 years ago, we subsidized the industry to the tune of $100 billion, and that's not the the unquantifiable amount from, from the Price-Anderson Act, where we insure nuclear power plants as well. These are just subsidies, and now we've got a whole set of brand new subsidies that companies in New York and Ohio and Pennsylvania and New Jersey are coming to the ratepayers. It's mind-boggling. We've got a whole video about it, lays out all the details over at TomHartman.com, and you can get over there and check it out. It's pretty amazing stuff, and nuclear power, no panacea. In fact, it's a big problem. Check it out at TomHartman.com. Thank you.
question. Could Trump's lies start World War III? And should he be impeached for his lies about his near war with Iraq, which, by the way, the situation has not resolved itself. And, you know, it's all still up in the air. Initially, the State Department sent a release. This was, you know, after Trump had Soleimani executed. That said, and I quote, Soleimani was planning imminent attacks against American diplomats and our armed forces members in Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and in the region. But the State Department press release did not include any tele- intelligence, which, you know, typically there would be at least some, you know, proof of that. And so Donald Trump went on Fox News, the only place where he likes to go. And Laura Ingram said, you know, well, don't the American people have the right to know specifically what was targeted without, you know, in other words, us being targeted by the Iranians without really revealing methods and sources? And so Trump said, I can reveal that I believe, that's a weasel word, right? If you're going to tell a lie under oath or in the press, you always start it with, I think, I believe, I'm not sure I remember, but it seems to me like, you say things like that, and you can just basically follow it with any old lie you want. And Trump said, I can reveal that I believe it would have been four embassies. Four embassies? Really? So this guy was four times bad guy? So that was on Friday. On Sunday, Mark Esper, who is the Secretary of Defense, goes on CBS News. And they ask him, right up, Margaret Brennan, are you saying there wasn't a specific piece of evidence that Iran was going to attack any embassies or anything? And Esper says, I didn't see one with regard to four embassies. Now, if the Secretary of Defense says he hasn't seen any intelligence suggesting that Suleiman was, was planning to attack four embassies, that means it doesn't exist. Right? If there's any intelligence indicating that an embassy in the United States is about to be attacked, the Secretary of Defense, of all people on Earth, has that intelligence. So the Secretary of Defense goes on CBS and says, no, Trump is lying through his teeth like he always does. And here we have this complete disconnect between the truth that we expect our elected officials to share with us and the agencies of government, like the Department of Defense, to share with us, or the Department of State. It was the Department of State that issued the initial lie. That was Mike Pompeo, the former Tea Party Republican in the House of Representatives. And then Trump doubles down on that lie, in fact, quadruples that lie. Oh, it wasn't just the Baghdad embassy, it was four embassies. And then the Secretary of Defense, at least showing some institutional integrity, comes out and says, no, there was nothing. I didn't see anything. He goes on to say, you know, I agree with Donald Trump that eventually they would have gotten around to hitting us, or they, you know, they wanted to, certainly. My word's not his, but, you know, saying things to that effect. But basically what all of them are saying, and what Esper is saying by saying that he agrees with Trump, is that if we want to go to a war... We don't need actual reasons. We don't need actual intelligence. Now, this is the Bush-Cheney rationale, right? There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. 
You had Hans Blix, the head of the UN Arms Control Agency, who had spent years in Iraq monitoring their compliance with the UN sanctions. And Scott Ritter from the United States, Marine Colonel, all over the country. I mean, hundreds of sites for years. And these guys, are, there's, there's no weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein is writing a romance novel. But George W. Bush and Dick Cheney wanted to have a war. Halliburton needed a war. It was almost broke. Seriously, Halliburton was just about there on the edge of bankruptcy when Cheney and Bush took office. And suddenly we've got a war, and hey, we're shoveling all these no-bid contracts to Halliburton. A no-bid contract is where the government calls up a company, in this case Halliburton, and says, hey, you know, we need to have mess halls built. What would you charge us? And Halliburton says, oh, I don't know, how about $35 billion? And the government says, okay, that's cool with us. That's a no-bid contract. No competitors. We pay whatever they ask. So then Pompeo comes out and says, well, there was a series of imminent attacks that were being plotted by Qasem Soleimani. We don't know precisely when, and we don't know precisely where, but it was real. Well, wait a minute. If you don't know when, and you don't know where, how can you say it's imminent? Imminent means about to happen. Literally. Look it up. So now we've got the Secretary of State lying to us again. He lied at the beginning. He lied at the end. And he goes in and he does a briefing along with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense for all the senators. And Senator Mike Lee comes out and says, uh, no, I'm not impressed. This is probably the worst briefing I've seen. These are actual quotes from Mike Lee, at least on a military issue in the nine years I've served in the U.S. Senate. To come in and tell us that we can't debate, we can't discuss the appropriateness of military in intervention against Iran, it's un-American. It's unconstitutional. And it's wrong and insulting. He says, that was demeaning to the process ordained by the Constitution, and I find it completely unacceptable. This is Mike Lee, Republican from Utah. Republican from Tea Party Stan. Trump and his buddies are going after Mike Lee on this. They're trying to punish him for this. He said, I'm worried I can no longer take the Trump administration's word at face value. And he has still not learned the underlying information that motivated the decision to take out Soleimani. Well, I can tell you, Mike Lee, Trump took out Soleimani because he wanted to distract us from his impeachment. He took out Soleimani on the day that the news came out that the $2 billion in loans the Deutsche Bank gave to him had been backstopped by a Russian bank. He hit Soleimani as all kinds of terrible news about him was hitting the press. He hit Soleimani the day after the unredacted emails came out, after Bill Barr had redacted them, showing that at the Office of Management and Budget, they had told the Pentagon, this is you know his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, who also runs the Office of Management and Budget, and the OMB is what says to every other agency, okay, it's time to spend this money now, that the OMB said to the Pentagon, don't send those weapons, don't send that money to, Af to uh, Ukraine. 91 minutes after Trump gets off his perfect phone call. Well, the original emails kind of looked like there was nothing going on. 
because they were heavily redacted by Bill Barr. But somebody in the agency leaked the actual memos, and then we see, holy crap. They were explicitly telling the Pentagon, 91 minutes after Trump's conversation with, with uh, Zelensky, expressly telling the Pentagon, don't send the aid, don't send the weapons. This is a direct order from the President of the United States, from POTUS. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. He wanted to change the news narrative. But he's a master at it. He's been doing it for four years. And the media, I don't know if it's that they never figure it out or that they just love it. Hey, it's more eyeballs for our, for, you know. And now we're discovering that, in fact, the strike on Soleimani was authorized seven, you know, there's a couple of different stories. Some say seven months ago, others say nine months ago. Some say in early 2017. But it was authorized a long time ago, but only under certain circumstances, and those circumstances weren't met. So then, members of Congress who were at the briefing asked the Secretary of Defense, well, what, what authorized this strike? If it wasn't imminent attack, which the president can basically take out anybody anywhere in the world if they think that you know within minutes or hours they're going to attack Americans. But this attack was not imminent, obviously, now. So if it wasn't imminent, what gives you the legal authority to assassinate a foreign official? And he says the 2002 AUMF. Well, that was passed to authorize the Iraq War. And the Iraq War, you know, which was based on weapons of mass destruction. But Iran is not Iraq. In fact, Iran was at war with Iraq. So Tammy Duckworth sent a, a letter to Esper, to the Department of Defense, and said, you have until January 13th to post on your public website the specific legal memorandums or even simply the list of authorities under which you acted. And so far, the Pentagon has posted nothing. Nothing. And then it gets even worse. Now we discover Donald Trump is selling our troops to other countries. This has never happened before in the history of the United States. I'll tell you about this on the other side of the break. This is breathtaking. This is mind-boggling. This is, George Washington would be rolling over in his grave. Thomas Jefferson, who said, I shall, hope I shall never live to see the day when our young men are willing to be shot at for a sixpence, is, is puking. This is the Tom Hartman Program. By the way, a new ABC News poll shows 56% of Americans disapprove of how Trump is handling the Iran situation. Hmm. So this is producing some uh, anguish in Congress. Justin Amash, actually, is the person who's most outspoken about this. He was the Republican congressman from Grand Rapids, the town where I was born, is a Republican congressman from Grand Rapids who read the Mueller report and was so shocked by it that he came right out in a town hall and said, 
I have read the Mueller report. You need to read it, too. And when you read it, you will agree with me that Donald Trump needs to be impeached right now. At the very least, for obstruction of justice and obstruction of Congress, because he fought the Mueller report, just like he's fighting impeachment. He refused to provide any documents or any witnesses. And Mueller in the Mueller report says, you know, we believe that he committed this crime and this crime and this crime, but we can't prove it because he withheld the documents. And Mueller comes right out and says, if he was innocent, we would have said so. We're not saying so. So Justin Amash is that guy. He's that Republican who said that, and he got kicked out of the Republican Party for it. And now he's pointing out that Donald Trump is selling our troops. Trump, at one of his rallies recently, he said, Saudi Arabia is paying us for our troops. I said, listen, you're a very rich country. You want more troops? I'm going to send them to you, but you have to pay. you got to pay us. They're paying us. We've already deposited a billion dollars in the bank. Or they've already deposited a billion dollars in the bank. Now, people in government are going, a uh, billion dollars? I don't know where that is. No idea. Trump continues. He says, we're going to help. He's talking about South Korea. He says, we are going to help them, but those rich countries, they've got to pay for it. South Korea gave us $500 million. I said, you've got to help us along. We have 32,000 soldiers in South Korea protecting you from North Korea. You've got to pay. Justin Amash says, using our forces as mercenaries, paid mercenaries who are going to come in as long as Saudi Arabia pays us money. He says, this is wrong. He says, there are people who support the president who believe things he says, but he's pretty clear he's not bringing home the troops. He's just moving them to other parts of the Middle East where he can sell them. This is just all mind-boggling stuff. You know? It's just mind-boggling. You're listening to Tom Hartman. We're reading today from Guns for Hire, how the CIA and U.S. Army recruit mercenaries for white Rhodesia. In Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, 270,000 white settlers, mostly immigrated since World War II, controlled the government and economy, ruling over the 7 million black Africans. The Zimbabweans cannot vote. They have been forced off the bulk of the arable land, and they have no democratic rights whatsoever. All labor performance in Zimbabwe is black labor, and it is intensely exploited, often at less than subsistence wages. Zimbabweans have been fighting European invaders since the early 17th century. Since the 1890s, they have been directly ruled by Europeans, at first in the form of a private British corporation, the British South Africa Company. Since 1923, direct political rule has been in the hands of the white settlers, currently led by Ian Smith and his fascist Rhodesian Front Party. It's important to note that the white settlers were originally given this direct local power as a, quote, self-governing colony of the British government, thereby creating a master-caretaker relationship. During these past 80-odd years, Western imperialism, the multinational corporations of the United States, Britain, and South Africa, has extracted huge profits from the exploited and oppressed Zimbabwean population via the subsidiaries of the Anglo-Americans, Lonro, Amax, AMAX, Union Carbide, Mobile, ITT, and other corporations. They fully intend to continue doing so as long as they can. The white settler minority has been rewarded for their violent subjugation of the Zimbabwean people with perhaps the highest national standard of living in the world. Sir Roy Walensky, the former prime minister of the Central African Federation, which included what is now Rhodesia, once said, 
This man, Smith, has an appeal. It's the appeal of an easy life. For $6,000 a year, you can have five servants, a swimming pool, and a lot. During the early 1960s, however, the Zimbabwean nationalist forces under the leadership of the Zimbabwe African National Union, ZANU, evolved the strategy of guerrilla war to liberate their people and land. It is proving to be very successful. There are 20,000 guerrillas in base camps in Tanzania and Mozambique, over 3,000 in Zimbabwe itself, and this number is continually rising. In a meeting between Stephen Solars, a U.S. congressman, and the ZANU guerrilla leaders, they were reported to reject the possibility of enlisting the assistance of Cuban or other foreign troops, declaring that if we cannot liberate ourselves, we do not deserve to be liberated. Despite Western propaganda to the effect that the U.S. and British only wish to avoid a bloodshed in Rhodesia, don't forget the Zimbabweans have been bleeding for almost a century, their real fear is that the liberation struggle will win. With this victory in sight, it is not surprising that the counterattack by the Smith regime has become more vicious and brutal. Actually, this must have been published pre-1980, because this is when Smith was still in power in Rhodesia. More than 250,000 rural Zimbabweans have been forced into concentration camps. Terrorist raids have been conducted against Zimbabwean refugees in Mozambique. Dusk-to-dawn shoot-on-site curfews have been instituted and enforced in the border areas. And escalating counterinsurgency attacks have been launched against the military arm of the liberation struggle, the Zimbabwean People's Army, ZIPA. It is crucial for Westerners to understand that the Smith regime has not stood alone in this barbaric campaign. This pamphlet documents the critically important element in U.S. imperialism's support for the Smith regime, white mercenary reinforcements for the fascist Rhodesian, quote, security forces. This flow of U.S. mercenaries to prop up white Rhodesia is an important, though secret, part of U.S. imperialism's strategy for Africa. The U.S. has massive investments in southern Africa. Zimbabwe alone supplies the bulk of high-grade chrome ore used in the U.S. for jet engines and other advanced technological items. Coal, copper, and other minerals are ripped out of Zimbabwe for U.S. industry. Mobile oil, Texaco, Hertz Rent-A-Cars, Holiday Inns, and many other U.S. corporations operate illegally in Rhodesia through foreign subsidiaries. More important still is South Africa, the fortress of U.S. interests in Africa, where $1.5 billion is invested by GM, IBM, Ford, and other giant multinational corporations. The liberation of Zimbabwe would, for the first time, penetrate the buffer zone of satellite countries protecting the borders of South Africa. South African guerrilla fighters, who are already training by the thousands in camps in Tanzania and Zambia, would have direct access to re-enter their land and accelerate the liberation struggle. Knowing that the stakes are high, U.S. imperialism has worked to strengthen the white supremacist outposts in Africa, although at times this had to be done covertly. In 1970, the Nixon White House approved Henry Kissinger's Operation Tar Baby strategy, based on option two of the secret national study, security study memorandum number 39. This strategy essentially called for covert military assistance, including direct exchanges, so that South African troops could be trained in the U.S. in specialized tactics and weapons. This would be done while the U.S. tried to convince Africans that it was on their side. This is from the, the pamphlet number 39, that uh, Kissinger memorandum. We would maintain public opposition to racial oppression, but relax political isolation and economic restrictions without openly taking a position undermining the United Kingdom and the U.N. on Rhodesia. We would be more flexible in our attitudes for the Smith regime. And it goes on from there. Guns for hire. 2020. A new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. 
But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlighting the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hey, good morning there, Tom. Doing okay and uh, making it through the new year here. Well, good. What I'm seeing out of all this is um, Trump getting out of the Iran nuclear treaty. This was kind of twofer right from the get-go for him. It destroys one of Obama's accomplishments in the meantime. And also, you know, he was radioactive right from the get-go. And if the heat ever got too close to him, which it was, you know, things flew under the radar the week of uh, him ordering the killing of Soleimani. That he could just kind of pull this out of his back pocket and start something very provocative, you know, that could escalate into a war. Right. Uh, and that would be another twofer uh, there, too. Uh, I would bolster his reelection chances, and also he'd get some of this heat off of him. Yeah, um, you know, he, he, and, and, and by the way, Steve, he authorized this seven months ago when the impeachment was starting or when the, you know, a serious discussion of impeachment was starting up. So I agree with you. I think he just stuck this in his back pocket and thought, I'll throw this out there when I've got a bad news cycle. Exactly. And it happened and it did. Him getting out of this treaty also, it's a twofer, excuse me, for mm-hmm. Putin. Or he was shooting him with the incidents that would happen. Putin got a freebie out of all this chaos because it further erodes our influence in the Middle East, and it shows it sows more discontent and division in the United States. And also, I suspect he might have given green-lighted or even ordered Tehran with all the turmoil that's going on and chaos to shoot down that Ukrainian airliner. He's at war with Ukraine, and he got a freebie there. What do you think, Tom? I don't think that, you know, I think that that's uh, pushing it way too far. But I do agree with the assertion of the Iranians that it was collateral damage having to do with Trump's strike on Soleimani. I mean, this is, these dead Ukrainians and Iranians and Canadians, and I guess uh, some German and French, these people are dead because Donald Trump decided that he was going to assassinate a foreign leader in order to divert attention away from his impeachment. It's just that simple. Steve, thanks for the call. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. Yeah, uh, using the definition of imminent that, you know, that we're using, I would say World War III is imminent. I mean, look, you've got to understand the game that you're in. What's the difference between Barack Obama and Donald Trump? I can tell you. It's how they define a citizen. And actually, if you look at the Chicago school and our evolution towards a neoliberal state, it becomes incredibly clear. The definition of what a citizen is is changing. Tom, when you were um, hiking around back in the 60s, you had a definition of of what it meant to be a citizen of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at, let's take a country like the Philippines that has accepted neoliberalism, all right, is evolved into a neoliberal uh, state. 
you can't even go to the airport unless you have a plane ticket. All right. In America, we can go to the airport without a plane ticket, right? Because we're citizens. Well, you can't get past now, security, what, though, if you don't have a ticket. Well, we're right. And this is a process of evolution. And what I think is we're in an, a state of emergent probability. All right. And what we're, we're quibbling over is the catalyst. Like, for instance, if Donald Trump wants to change the media narrative, that's all he wants to do. Right. Will that be an Archduke Ferdinand moment to throw us into World War Three? Yes. I believe it is, it's coming. And if he gets a second term, I've, I've been preoccupied with World War III since 2010. It's been my mm. single preoccupation. Mm. And I'm absolutely certain it's coming because what you have are two opposing systems. Vladimir Putin said the refugee crisis is the result of the failure of Western liberalism. Wrong, Vladimir Putin. The, the failure is um, we are no longer liberal in the West. We are neoliberal. We have this fiat money system, right? And it is in arrest. It is in a brink of crisis. And what we're doing is we're contending with that. The Russian Shanghai cooperative, the Shanghai cooperative between China and Russia, what they have is a hybrid system where they, they barter oil. You know, it's not necessarily based on a state currency. They can trade oil for rubles. They can trade oil from renminbi. I get all that, Dave. What's your whatever. point? Yeah. My point is, is um, we, we need to understand exactly what is going to happen if we continue this confrontational track with these countries that have an opposing system. More and more, I keep seeing in the news, Russian ships coming and Russian aircraft coming danger close to U.S. Yeah, it happened uh, two days ago. There was uh, 60 yeah. yards away. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember? Because the Russians are not going to accept Russia and China cannot accept that. In exchange for a visa, we have guns, or we go where the money is, we go, where the, we go in with firepower, we go where the money is. That's a system that's eventually, that's eventually going to cause a problem in Beijing and, and a problem with the Kremlin. And that problem is going to result in World War III. I made a comment the other day. I couldn't believe how stupid it said. I, I said, we don't want mercenaries. Do you really want your kids serving in a mercenary force? Uh-huh. I mean, uh, Donald Trump, if you give a big campaign contribution to Donald Trump, your, your son or daughter may not have to serve in Asia. Maybe you don't want him serving in Asia. Maybe you want right. him serving down in Australia. Yeah. I get it. Well, Dave, Har- I really want to move along to the next caller. I think Sorry. you have made your point. Thank you very much. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I, people have been suggesting that the assassination of Soleimani, given the recent information about that had been in the works or in the plan for seven to nine months, that this was to influence the jurors in his impeachment trial, so to come to that. But I don't think it's the senators that he's trying to influence. I think he's trying to influence John Bolton, who was the one who advised that Trump kill Soleimani. Right. He knows that this is this is like code. This is code talk. Well, when it was right after he killed Soleimani that Bolton said he was willing to testify before Congress. I think you and I have talked about this, Paul. That I shared my theory that I think Bolton is trying to get his his dirt on Trump on the record because there's no way the White House will vet his book and therefore it can't be published and therefore he doesn't get paid. And you suggested, as I recall, that no, that, you know, by assassinating Soleimani, he guaranteed that Bolton will come in and say, oh, Donald Trump is wonderful and he never did anything wrong. Well, I think actually timing wise is that Bolton said that he was going to testify before Soleimani was killed. Oh, was it? Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, that's why I think that I didn't know this. I only learned. Oh, this you think this he morning. killed Soleimani after Bolton said yes? I'll testify in order to get Bolton to change his testimony. Yes, this is this is uh, this is tampering with the uh, witness tampering again. Yeah. So because they may have argued about this, and obviously it wasn't done until now, but they eventually had their falling out over Ukraine, and Bolton uh, was fired slash quit. Okay, so now they left on bad terms. Let's say this. They parted on, on ugly terms. And at this point, Trump is trying to say, look, I did what you said. I, I, find, you know, I did what mm-hmm. you recommended. It, yeah, it's possible that the Republicans wanted to kill Soleimani a long time ago. I'm sure they did. But, you see, you can't do that. And this I know we have discussed. You can't do that when you got the, the nuclear agreement in place. Right. That's why they had to pull out of the nuclear agreement. I mean, you could have killed him, but that would have shattered the agreement. And we know that Soleimani was not planning any attacks on American uh, sites during the agreement. Otherwise, had we found out about that, that would have... Well, and when they blew him up in Baghdad, he was on his way to carry... He was carrying a peace letter, a peace negotiation between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I mean, that's the according to the news reports. So, anyhow, Paul, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, time will tell. We're hopefully, I mean, you know, hopefully we'll we'll learn what's going on with all of this. It, it's uh, it's breathtaking. Welcome back, John in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Great show as usual. Sticking with the ineptness of the corporate media, I wanted to extend that to the subject of impeachment. For instance, instead of badgering Pelosi incessantly for the last three weeks, why wasn't the corporate media going after McConnell and Lindsey Graham? I know. I listened to Chuck Todd's show, and he spent the whole hour going, oh, the Democrats are really getting nervous, and uh, Pelosi's really in a corner, and oh, baby. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, it's, I, I completely agree with you, Jeff. Thank you. Sheila in Talent, Oregon. Hey, Sheila, what's on your mind today? Yeah, none of us sitting at home in any of these countries, my country included, knew that Iran was going to shoot off ballistic missiles. They were thinking more like Katusha rockets. They also thought car bomb, truck bomb, suicide bomb. Nobody knew. We sat on pins and needles thinking it wouldn't even happen that soon, that it was going to be down the road. But news, news people even commented on that. So nobody knew. When that plane took off, she took off from Iran to get out of Iran. Right. And there was a grounding. I remember I never left the airways listening when this happened because I was terrified. I've got a nephew over there mm-hmm. and serving in uniform. A very brown nephew, everybody. So mm-hmm. um, it just irks me what he's taken in this country, the, the verbiage he's taken from racists. And my nephew, my beautiful nephew, is over there risking his life. So at any rate, we did not know. That plane went off the radar at 8,000 feet. So it was already in the air for a bit. Mm-hmm. And we also have to remember that it was Sean Hannity on the airways before there was any, before those missiles left their mobile units, that he said, warned Iran that these two bombers, B-2 bombers were on their way, that the greatest military in the world, that there was a day of reckoning. I can't remember all the Yeah, I saw the clip. I, I saw that Seth Abramson had, had tweeted about a, about that. I, I don't know yeah. that Iran is monitoring Sean Hannity, and, I, you know, and I, uh, I'm inclined to think that this is just I, good old-fashioned screw-up. <laughs> Say what? I think it was a screw-up, screw but one has to remember that they do monitor, Russia probably monitors Fox, because... 
uh, Trump takes a lot of his advice from them. He does a lot of things by what they say to him. I just realized I'm on speakerphone. I am so sorry. But so I think they do. Did they think that that was a I looked at the area mass of a B-2 bomber versus uh, 737. I even thought when this first happened, 737 was um, was a mechanical error because we've seen these we've seen a lot of this already. But it was an 800, not a max. I think it was a legitimate, terrible, horrible, brutal mistake. And the biggest problem Iran has is they should, should have owned up to it to, in the beginning. Right, from the get-go. And although so, although I'm not sure that they yeah. knew. I mean, they might have been thinking that it was some local militia that took it out or whatever. In any case, thank you for the call. And uh, thank you all for being with us today. Wow, that show flew by. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place, same channel. Let your friends know about progressive media, by the way. However you're listening or watching this program, listening to or watching this program, tell your friends, your neighbors, your relatives. Talk about it on social media. And not just this program. There's a lot of great progressive programming. In all probability, it, by, you know where you find this show, tell people about it. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. And uh, tomorrow we'll discuss you know, what happened in the debates tonight. I'm looking forward to it. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.